0: This is the premiere of Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society and host of Planetary Radio. Part of the Planetary Society's mission is to explore new worlds and you could say that's what we're doing with this new radio series. Another part of our mission is to share news and advocacy of space exploration with a world full of space enthusiasts. Whether you're hearing us live on KUCI in Orange County, California, live via the KUCI website, or on the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org, we welcome you to this experiment. We also hope you'll be with us every week as we explore the exciting potential of this series. And we think we've got a great beginning plan with today's show. We'll talk with Dr. Lewis Friedman, Executive Director, and one of the founders of the Planetary Society. Later in the half hour, you'll hear Bruce Betts, the Society's Director of Projects, tell us what's up in the sky in his regular segment called Just That, What's Up? Have you heard about the Society's contest that will allow a young person to name NASA's new Mars rovers? Bruce will have that story, too. But first, let's get underway with another of our regular features. I'll be back in just a minute.
1: This is a random space fact. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla, science and technology coordinator for the Planetary Society. Pluto, the ninth and outermost planet in the solar system, is the only one that has never been visited by a spacecraft. Very little was known about the tiny planet until the chance discovery in 1978 of its moon, Charon. Observations of Charon's movement around Pluto led to some startling discoveries. And I'll tell you about some of those discoveries when I return in a few minutes. Now, back to Planetary Radio.
0: Lou, thanks very much for being the first and and very appropriate first guest uh, on this broadcast version of Planetary Radio.
2: Well, thanks, Matt. I'm certainly glad to be here and certainly glad to talk about things planetary and the Planetary Society. Uh, And I really love the name, Planetary Radio, and let's uh, let's make that our goal, to make this a a Planetary Radio show.
0: Well, we certainly hope so, and we very much appreciate the folks at KUCI, not only for carrying the program on their broadcast signal, but uh, allowing us to stream this. Uh, Around the world, they have a big audience on KUCI, and, of course, it will be available uh, on an archival basis uh, at the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org. How did the Planetary Society come about?
2: Well, as uh, most people know, it was formed by uh, Carl Sagan, uh, Bruce Murray, and myself. uh, Back in the late 70s, uh, uh, in 1979, actually, Um, uh, Dr. Sagan was out here in Pasadena Working on the Voyager Mission and on his Cosmos uh, TV show, which was being done by the PBS station here in Los Angeles, so he was actually in residence out here temporarily uh, on these on these twin giant projects of Voyager. Uh, with its uh, multiple planetary encounters. It was on its way to a Jupiter encounter uh, and Cosmos, which became the largest and most successful science show ever on PBS and uh, highly watched still today around the world. He and uh, Dr. Murray, who was then director of the Jet Propulsion Lab, were talking and they were commenting on the great... Public interest in planetary exploration. Voyager was making the front cover of uh, news magazines. There was this great newspaper interest. Uh, the public was writing in. There was uh, the idea of going to all the outer planets for the first time was uh, was uh, quite an exciting uh, venture. And Viking had just uh, recently uh, in the mid 70s, uh, 1976 to actually 81, it was returning. Uh, A whole lot of images from Mars and lots of data about Mars, first thought to be, oh, gee, a a downer on life. And then as we learned about the water and the ancient floodplains and the rivers and the channels, maybe a much more exciting place, a place that remains exciting in our mind. So there's all this public interest, and the incoming administration was planning to cut out, kill, stop, not slow down, not reduce the budget, but actually stop planetary exploration. And uh, so there's this huge dichotomy. The public's interested, but the political system is going to kill planetary exploration. And uh, what to do about that? And the idea was that a very American thing to do is to form a public interest group. And that's when they uh, said, let's put some effort into uh, forming a public interest organization. I was working in the U.S. Congress on a one-year leave of absence from JPL at the time. And uh, so I was coming back here to... Pasadena, And so I was kind of a target of opportunity for them. Uh, they said, oh, well, he doesn't have a job yet. Let's give him this to do. And uh, so the three of us began talking, and I had been myself uh, wondering about this uh, same problem, only I was doing it from the congressional perspective. That's it. We got together, and uh, the rest is history.
0: So you began with this idea of advocacy on on the part of of space exploration, which we're going to talk more about after a break in a few minutes. But the society, I I think, quickly took on many other roles.
2: Yeah, we didn't really know what, uh, you know, here's three scientists, basically, uh, saying we're going to form a social movement, a public interest organization. Uh, First of all, we didn't even know how to incorporate anything, let alone a a new kind of business. Uh, And we certainly didn't know uh, we had spent our lives. uh, Of course, Dr. Sagan was very involved with the public, but not in a public interest organization sense. So uh, he was... a uh, at heart, a university professor, uh, as was uh, Dr. Murray, and I had been an aerospace engineer. So it's kind of uh, first thing was to do is to find out what we wanted to be, and we got a lot of good advice. Uh, I went around to uh, meet dozens of people in the aerospace industry and around uh, in the political system. Uh, we one person who was very influential was John Gardner, the founder of Common Cause. Oh, sure, uh, who. Uh, uh, really uh, uh, told us a lot about public interest organizations and public interest uh, organizing. Uh, and uh, we met with others and decided, uh, it wasn't obvious at first, but then we decided, look, Planetary Pictures are so exciting, we need a full-color magazine. Hmm. We're not just going to have some... Little newsletter go out about us. We're going to have a full-color magazine, and so that was the birth of the Planetary Report, which immediately dictated hiring a experienced, capable editor. And Charlene Anderson was our our first hire and has been with us uh, ever since. She, As, remain, she remains associate director. Uh, yeah, right? she's associate director of the society, director of publications, and so that dictated sort of the style of the society, high credibility. A very nice publication, uh, something uh, re- trying to capture the adventure and excitement of planetary exploration, but always staying close to the science as well. So that dictated, a, as I say, a number of things. We were involved in advocacy. That was the time the uh, U.S. was making decisions not to do planetary missions. We alone, among all the spacefaring nations, chose not to go to Halley's comet, mm. and uh, and so we we did get politically involved. But uh, and, and much to NASA's uh, disgruntlement, because NASA felt that uh, they knew how to do it better, and, and if they didn't want to do planetary exploration uh, uh, because they had to focus just on the shuttle, uh, that's, uh, that was their decision. They resented this idea of a public interest group uh, uh, telling them what to do. Uh, at the same time, we also began to see projects, things that the government wasn't doing. The government uh, wasn't doing SETI. And so we funded SETI scientists to do some research activities and and have conferences and uh, i 'm sure
0: we should for a few the few out there who don 't know SETI is of course the search for extraterrestrial intelligence
2: that 's right Congressmen uh, were making fun of it. they said well there 's no uh, signs of terrestrial intelligence. Why should we look for extraterrestrial intelligence <laughs> uh, and maybe hanging around Congress, I can understand why they had that point of view but uh, we had a serious radio astronomical search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and it was a serious topic. And uh, uh, we were able to actually make some meaningful contributions, and and still do so to this day. Uh, but we got involved with research projects, uh, including uh, uh, the near Earth asteroid problem, before anybody began to pay attention to it. Uh, and and I think we have made a difference o- over the years.
0: Did you have any idea when the three of you started out, you and Bruce Murray and Carl Sagan? that the society would become, well, what it is today, uh, the world's biggest space interest group.
2: I don't think we saw everything clearly. Uh, we certainly didn't know, as I say, we didn't know a lot, uh, so it was hard to predict what we were going to become. But we, this is a, that's a nice way of saying that, uh, that we were winging it. Uh, and uh, the uh, But I think we did, of course, have the ambition that we would be influential and that we would be uh, part of a public interest. And we never thought we had to create public interest. Public interest is there. You Mm. have to harness it. Mm -hmm. You have to get people involved about it. But uh, the public fascination with the ideas of are we alone in the universe? Uh, What is the nature of life? Are there life uh, on other worlds? Or is life very rare? Uh, How does it evolve throughout the universe? What are the physical conditions at the planets? These are questions that have been occupying human attention for all of our history, sometimes in mythology, in folklore, in uh, in religion, certainly. Uh, And now we're doing it with science. So we don't have to sell this idea to the public. They have to sell it to the politicians, and that's what we were about.
0: We have about a minute left before we're going to take a break. Really? Uh, Ten
2: minutes goes very fast.
0: Doesn't it? Yeah. And so will the second ten when we uh, talk about that advocacy role of the society. Sometime in the next few weeks, we're definitely going to talk about the Solar Sail Project. But since you are... In addition to your general duties with the Society, the head of that project, we should give you at least 30 seconds to mention something you're very excited about.
2: Well, uh, that will be just a teaser then. Uh, uh, Riding on a light beam to sail between the planets and someday to the stars is uh, what we're trying to promote by carrying out the first solar sail mission. And uh, it's it's a measure of how far the Society has come that we can actually try our own space project and get into space ourselves uh, with our own vehicle. So, um, Uh, Anybody listening, stay tuned. We'll talk more about it later.
0: We've been talking with Lou Friedman, who is the Executive Director of the Planetary Society, and we're going to keep talking to Lou, but first we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about advocating for space exploration, something the Planetary Society has been doing for well over two decades. Back in a minute. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. We're back. Matt Kaplan here with Planetary Radio, the premier show on KUCI of Planetary Radio, Uh, We hope that you're uh, enjoying the program so far, whether you're listening via the live stream from KUCI, the broadcast signal, or perhaps you're uh, checking us out in the archived edition on the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org. We're going to pick up our conversation with Lou Friedman, the executive director of the Planetary Society, and we're going to move to uh, something he talked about a few minutes ago really kind of where the society started, which is something I wasn't fully aware of, that you started with this advocacy uh, interest. Uh,
2: that's right, Matt, and uh, recently we did a, a survey among our members uh, and found out that advocacy is one of the chief reasons people belong to the Planetary Society. They want space exploration to happen. It's our motto. We make it happen, and uh, uh, and so we've been uh, involved. Now, one of the things is that space is not a national issue in the sense of uh, Social security, in the sense of economic uh, matters, health in the sense of health care, yeah. and national security. Certainly, uh, very few, very rarely do you see a campaign discussion of the space program in any sense, and certainly not about the scientific part. Uh, it can't, we can't pretend that this is a, a giant public issue, and yet it does have this enormous public interest, and and so we do we have that job of translating it. I think we've been effective. I think in the last five years, as a matter of fact, we've every single year, gotten the Congress to take action on either the Mars program or some aspect of the planetary program, add money in, add some direction to NASA, not always with NASA's blessing. In fact, right now we are advocating a mission to Pluto that NASA doesn't want to do, that the administration has taken out of the budget, that they've tried to cancel three times. And we're fighting with them about this, and uh, I'm pleased to report we've won. Uh, And uh, I think uh, both the houses of Congress now have... Uh, for two years in a row, overridden the administration's rejectors, said, no, you can't cancel it, we want it done. Now, for reasons that I find absolutely crazy, the administration resents this. Hmm. I would think even NASA resents it. It's, it's a government bureaucracy, and they don't like to be told by outsiders how to do things. But isn't that crazy that we have the Congress in these times of other national priorities uh, actually expressing its will and interest, to do planetary exploration to an esoteric subject like Pluto, which people even debate, is it a planet, is it not a planet, what's it made of, what's it not made of, and the Congress wants to do it, and NASA somehow resents that fact. I I think that's crazy, but I'm glad to say that uh, I think a mission to Pluto will happen, uh, and then we can argue later about whether it's a planet or not when we get those results.
0: When we get a close-up look, which we've never had.
2: Uh, one of the things I like to do is tell my uh, people interviewing me uh, what questions they should ask me so uh, <laughs> you should ask me Matt uh, is is Pluto a planet? Say Lou I've always wondered is Pluto a planet and isn't there
0: disagreement about that even within the planetary society?
2: Yes there is uh, and uh, somewhat it's a semantics argument uh, I'm a simple minded guy so I take the view if it's round and principally goes around <laughs> the sun then it's a planet what more do you want? Rather uh, than going around something else. Yeah now a moon of course is round but it It goes principally around the Earth, and and so therefore it's a secondary uh, object or satellite, as we, we say. Asteroids go around the sun principally, but they're not round. They're not big enough to be undifferentiated. So Pluto, I think, makes it because it's round and it goes around the sun, so I'm satisfied. But there are others, and in fact, Neil Tyson, our vice president of the Planetary Society, who is director of the Hayden Planetarium, who actually initiated this debate by a display at the Hayden Planetarium, says, no, 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 Pluto's not a planet. It is a the largest and most important representative of a new class of objects called the Kuiper Belt objects. And he's right. In a, in a strict intellectual sense, I've become convinced that he's right, although I still want to classify um, Pluto as a planet for, for various reasons. But these Kuiper Belt objects, which we didn't know about when we were studying astronomy uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, <laughs> uh, uh, now see that there's a whole representative class of objects out there that are not quite planets, not quite, uh, but bigger than asteroids, that have their own evolutionary history and importance in the so- history of the solar system we need to learn more about to figure out where they fit into this evolutionary history of the solar system and their effect on both terrestrial planets and outer planets. And the, so as a Kuiper Belt object, it's probably the most important object to visit because it's the largest and most important representative of this, this new class of uh, objects that are discovered. Recently, another large Kuiper Belt object was discovered, and, and uh, a lot got some newspaper attention. Just a few weeks ago. Yeah, just a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. If this had happened 30 years ago, the newspaper headlines would have said 10th planet found uh, because it, it it is kind of round and, big and goes around the sun and probably would have gotten called a 10th planet. But now we do know it is a Kuiper Belt object. So the, the boundary is uh, fuzzy about this, but I want to tell you the most important reason for calling it a planet. Okay. And that's the Planetary Society's phone number is 809
0: WORLDS.
2: (laughs) And it's awkward to change it to 810 WORLDS or 808 WORLDS, so we want to stick with it as 9 WORLDS.
0: Uh, Inertia is a wonderful thing sometimes. Pluto is certainly a, a big issue for the Planetary Society and our members, but there are also some targets within the solar system much closer to home, which the Planetary Society has been advocating for.
2: Yeah, it's kind of... Funny because then, just like this Pluto is a planet argument which becomes semantics, then others people start criticizing us all the planetary society is only about Pluto, which of course is silly. We have been great Mars advocates over the years. Uh, there's another out of planets mission on, uh, to a place called Europa, which is not a planet but a moon of Jupiter, but very important one because it is known to have this ice covered surface which has every evidence of having a liquid water ocean beneath it it's liquid water, it must be a heat source. If there's heat and water, you have all the ingredients for life. Every place there's heat and water on Earth, there's there's, there's life. And so the idea that uh, Europa is important to the idea of extraterrestrial life is, is absolutely fundamental. So we're pushing a mission to Europa as well. Now, Europa is very tough. It's not as far as Pluto, but it's very tough to do a mission there because you have to get into a high energy orbit around the moon and you have to fight the radiation belts at Jupiter. So actually, the mission to Europa is a higher technology, tougher mission than the mission to Pluto. Having said that, the folks at JPL and NASA do know how to do a mission there, and we're advocating that, too. So uh, we're not just about one planet. We're not just about Mars. We're not just about Europa. We're not just about Pluto. We're for planetary exploration broadly and uh, in a measured program that systematically explores just the way the... 16th and 17th and 18th century sailors explored the seven seas. We want to explore the eight worlds, nine worlds, ten worlds, really 50, 60, 70 worlds out there if you count all the planets and moons.
0: And uh, even the ones beyond our own solar system.
2: Actually, a trick question uh, might be, how many planets are there? And somebody might say eight or nine or ten, but the actual answer is we're up to about a 100 uh, because there's some 85 extraterrestrial planets have been our discovered. Or extra, extrasolar planets? I, I'm sorry, extrasolar planets, yeah. yeah, planets beyond our solar system around other stars that have been discovered. Uh, this is an area of absolute burgeoning research. They, so for The first discoveries are about the oddballs, the very big planets that are very close to their parent stars. Uh, but in the next few years, we're going to be discovering smaller planets and bigger planets far away from their stars and maybe even a terrestrial-like planet and an Earth-like planet. Soon there will be instruments that can start to measure the spectrum of the atmospheres of some of these planets, and we'll find out whether or not they have the spectrum that's consistent with life, the atmospheric constituents that are consistent with life. So this is an area that's going to be exciting research uh, in astronomy, and uh, this is something the Planetary Society has been advocating, and indeed we've actually sponsored some research in this area as far back as
0: 1981. Hmm. Your enthusiasm, I think, is obvious to anyone listening to this or who has ever spoken to you. Scientists aerospace engineer, but for 22 years you've been running a, a non-profit interest group. Uh, has it been fun?
2: Uh, it's it's a real joy. The uh, If you'd ask me at any time in my life, up until the last decade, whether I'd stay at a job for that long a period of time, of course, I'd, I'd, it wouldn't be my nature. I'd, I'd, I'm restless. Uh, what has been really gratifying at the Planetary Society is just when you think, that uh, the work is getting a little stale, you go to the same office, you meet the same people every day, you get a really interesting project. You get the chance to put a microphone on the surface of Mars uh, or to get students involved in telerobotic control first in the uh, with a, an experiment uh, that takes place in the Mojave Desert, and then with an the experiment that's actually going to take place on the surface of Mars, uh, that you can f- fly a Mars balloon, that you can fly a solar sail mission. So it, it is a joy, in it, and and more than even a joy, it's an adventure. And what more do you want out of a job?
0: And that is the best word for it, an adventure. And we hope to communicate some of the sense of that adventure, the enthusiasm, and even the fun of it. Uh, Space exploration, it's what the Planetary Society has been about. Lou Friedman, thanks very much for being a part of this very first broadcast version of Planetary Radio.
1: Thank you, Matt. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with more random space facts about Pluto and Charon. At one-seventh the mass of Pluto, Charon is bigger relative to its planet than any other moon in the solar system. Our own moon, which held this distinction until Charon's discovery, is only one-hundredth the mass of Earth. Charon is also very close to Pluto, orbiting at a distance of only 20,000 kilometers, making it the closest moon to its primary of any moon in the solar system. From a vantage point on Pluto, Charon would appear seven times larger in the sky than the moon appears in our own sky. But unlike our moon, Charon never rises and sets in the Plutonian sky because Pluto and Charon are in synchronous rotation, which means that both bodies rotate at exactly the same rate as they orbit each other once every six days. Join me for more random space facts in next week's show. Here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: We're back with Planetary Radio and Dr. Bruce Betts. Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. We actually had a little trouble deciding, you know, how how do we introduce this guy? Because he's done a lot of things and continues to do a lot of things. We thought maybe... In particular, with this segment in mind, maybe Buddha of the Beyond, but I don't know. Bruce wasn't really hot on that. So, <laughs> Bruce Batts, welcome to Planetary Radio. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> of course, we, we hope to make this a regular thing because uh, this segment, which is at least tentatively called What's Up? not to say what's up doc because you know somebody else owns that but what's up because one of the things we're hoping you're going to be able to talk about every week is what's up what's up in the sky and we're going to talk about what's up in the sky in a moment but i think you've also got a little bit of space history for us i do indeed
3: this week we we're lucky enough to have a truly unusual uh, space history note on uh, November 30th, 1954, in the state of Alabama, a 10-pound meteorite slammed through a roof and uh, hit Elizabeth Hodges in the stomach while she slept. She was okay, only bruises and scrapes, but it does represent one of the only times uh, in known history that a meteorite actually hit a person, fortunately for her, after coming through the roof.
0: Does anybody know what happened to that meteorite? I mean, did she keep it? Uh? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm
3: sure it was subjected to various scientific tests, both by the planetary and medical communities. <laughs>
0: Which is, I thought maybe maybe there's a little storefront uh, museum there. You know, see the meteorite that uh, hit her in the stomach. <laughs> anyway, w- hey Bruce Best, what's up in the sky this week? Hey Matt, well, what's up in the sky is uh,
3: there are some nice planets to look at. We've got Saturn in the early evening. It rises in the east uh, right around sunset. Uh, so if you look in the east in the early evening uh, and the brightest thing up there that looks like a star, but it's brighter than any of the other stars in the area is actually the planet Saturn. A little later on, uh, Jupiter rises uh, in the later evening, meaning 10, 30, 11 at night, also in the east, and uh, it will be much brighter than Saturn and easily the brightest object in the sky besides the moon. And in fact, speaking of the moon, tonight, November 25th, Jupiter will actually appear near the moon. So if you look at the moon later in the evening and then look to the lower
0: right, you will see Jupiter. Now, for those of you who are listening to the show, the archival version of the show, we still have places for you to go to learn about what's up in the sky, and you probably want to visit the... Planetary Society website, uh, planetary.org, planetary.org. But we do take that into account. We we hope you can catch us live sometimes. Anything to add to that, Bruce?
3: Uh, Yes. One other thing for those early risers out there, really early risers, before dawn, if you look in the uh, southeast, you can see Venus and Mars, uh, both up there. Venus, very bright, much brighter than even Jupiter. Brightest object out there besides
0: the moon and the sun. Great night for stargazing and planet gazing. Yep. Uh, Let's talk about one other thing, something people can get involved with, and that is the uh, Mars rovers that are uh, scheduled for launch pretty soon, and the Planetary Society is very involved, but what are these contests?
3: All right. Well, we've got uh, two contests that related to the Mars Exploration Rovers mission, which will launch in the middle of '03 and get there in January of 2004. Uh, one uh, in connection with the Lego company is we're running the Name the Rovers contest for NASA, where uh, students from kindergarten through 12th grade uh, can submit names and essays to justify them, and actually one of them will end up na- naming the rovers that go to Mars.
0: Very cool. I've got a daughter already working on that. So.
3: <laughs> Excellent. And the uh, other contest is we have what's called the student astronaut contest that the Planetary Society is running. And uh, that will involve more intricate essays and is for basically high school level students. And that will be for students to actually work in operations at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory during the mission in doing uh, science and uh, interfacing with the scientists during the mission. So for both of these, uh, you can visit our website, planetary.org, or redrovergoestomars.org. You can also visit, for the name the rovers, the the nametherovers.org site.
0: Bruce, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll have more from you next week, I hope? Oh, yes. Great. Thank you very much. Bruce Betts with What's Up, what we hope will be a regular feature here on Planetary Radio. That's all the time we have for this very first edition of Planetary Radio. Please join us again next Monday at 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time here on KUCI. You can also hear this and all of our other shows anytime you like at the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org. In a moment, you'll hear how to reach us with your own suggestions, comments, and questions about Planetary Radio. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone.
1: Planetary Radio is a production of the Planetary Society, which is solely responsible for its content. Our producer is Matt Kaplan. Other contributors include Charlene Anderson, Monica Lopez, and Jennifer Vaughn. The executive producer is Dr. Louis Friedman. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the Society or this station. This edition of Planetary Radio is program number 0201 and is copyrighted by the Planetary Society. All rights are reserved. Your questions and comments are always welcome. Write to planetaryradio at planetary.org.